0: For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit.
1: It's uh, wonderful to have you with us. Uh, If you weren't here for the 9 o'clock service and joined us for the 9.15, I I began by saying Happy Lent, uh, if that is possible. I do want to introduce you to someone who won't be a stranger uh, to most. Jamie, come and join me. Uh, We started this um, experiment a month ago called The Deeply Formed Life, where we are reading a book together called The Deeply Formed Life. And it is touching on all of the complex issues we're having, uh, we will have to deal with this year. We're trying to get to them before they surprise us. And so last month we looked at busyness and I just wanted to ask Jamie uh, a couple of questions. So, Jamie, tell us, how long have you and your wife, Cynthia, been coming coming to St. Barts?
0: About two and a half years now.
1: Two and a half years and tell us, why did you sign up to uh, Deeply form Life?
0: Well, the thing that intrigued me most about it was the opening portion of it. Uh, when you're really looking at what a contemplative life is like, and in our society where we're so pushed uh, in every direction, where it seems to be a, a, a badge of honor to be busy, uh, it, it caused me to step back and uh, spend more time being contemplative. Uh, God kind of helped that process in our family a bit because my radio in my car doesn't work well, so I can barely hear it. And being an old radio guy, that's not good. But I'm forced now to spend more time when I drive uh, praying. uh, Hopefully with your eyes open. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And, and so tell us, so it's within the first month, it's early days, but have you noticed uh, a practical difference in your life, day-to-day walk with the Lord since?
0: I have. Uh, again, the focus being on the contemplative a- aspect of uh, almost, it's, it's a great word uh, of, of worrying, like a dog with a, with a bone, uh, where I can take a thought and uh, just chew on it for a while. Uh, through, through the day and take it from the morning collect and then, then be able to concentrate on that through the day. And it's helped calm down a lot of things that I thought were really important that really aren't. And
1: so uh, anything else you'd like to add?
0: If you're not part of it, you need to be. <laughs>
1: I don't think I asked you to say that, but thank you. Yeah, yeah well done. <laughs> Jamie, everyone, hand of, a hand of applause for Jamie. Thank you, Jamie, for sharing. Um, our passage, our gospel passage today, talks about Jesus being led after his baptism by the Spirit into the wilderness. And I would say, in fact, uh, I believe that where we are as a church and where we are as a culture is that we are being led by the Spirit into the middle of the discourse in this world. Um, I believe. The more I pray about it, the more I think about it, the more we talk about it, is that the world around us is looking, no longer to experts, because they kind of lost that. Even the church experts lost that in the last election cycle, in my opinion. We can disagree about it later, uh, if you'd like. Um, But the world really is looking to ordinary people like you and me to help reconcile the complex issues that we're facing. And so um, the first one, which I think is one that we, I was talking uh, to the author of the book on Thursday, I uh, pestered him till he uh, allowed a Zoom, and I said, you know, the book deals with racism, sexuality, uh, all kinds of issues, and I said, the most controversial topic is the one of busyness, because nobody wants to stop. And so if you haven't joined us for Deeply Formed Life, you can register, I think register, we have a few spaces left. We'd love for you to come because the goal isn't that we all read the book and come to the same place. But what if, what if we could hold the space in the center between traditional liberals and traditional conservatives? What if we could hold that space? And ask that God would make it a sacred space. And what if the church could be a place where we all believe in the same thing, but when it comes to these issues, which aren't really primary to salvation, what if we could find a way to disagree and still be agreeable? What if we could find a way to disagree and do it like Jesus did? What if? we could do it in such a way that the people we disagreed with didn't feel like we were rejecting them. That's the experiment. And I would say, as your pastor, as your priest, that I believe you can do it. But we need help. And so for the moments I have left, we're gonna deal with the topic of racism and racial justice. And in typical Canadian fashion, as a Canadian born and raised, it behooves me to apologize. Canadians, I've got my friend Chad here who's visiting from Vancouver, you've got to watch Canadians because they'll sneak up on you and they'll apologize for things beyond their control and then they'll end a really difficult statement with a question which makes it more palatable. So that's what we're going to try to do, and, and uh, I did introduce Chad earlier to a member of staff as the Auditor General for the Anglican Communion. Um, maybe not, but perhaps uh, you can keep, us, keep me on my toes. But let's turn briefly on this subject, and I, in sincerity, I do want to apologize because the time we have... Uh, means that I can't go in the depth that really this warrants. And that's not my goal today. My goal is just to, to uh, sow a thought that, that, that will guide you as you read chapters 3 and 4 of Deeply Formed Life. And my conviction, and I believe the truth is, that if you look at the history of the United States, and you look at the history of the Western world, we have more, as Christians, we have more in common with each other than we've been led to believe in recent times. We have more in common with each other, even with our disagreements. And so what I'd like to do is to briefly come to a place of joint understanding of what we mean by racism and what we mean by gospel. What is racism? What is the gospel? Because they're, you know, they're used all the time and they have such different meanings. And the goal isn't to convince you that one way is right or one way is the other. It's to say they're out there. And if we're going to go into the middle and we're going to love people and if our church is going to be a place where differences are welcome, we have to be able to engage with people who see things differently. So, let's begin. Racism. Um, Michael D. Emerson wrote a a fantastic paper from Baylor. I know there's some Baylor grads here, so well done, Baylor. Uh, Where he braces this question, and uh, his paper is called The Persistent Problem. And he breaks it down like this, is that there are currently two very different understandings of racism in our culture today, and, the, and one is individualistic, and one is collectivist, individualist and collectivist. And for some reason, the narrative around racism has pitched people who believe in each uh, cause of racism against each other. He says this, racism is one of the most overused words in the American lexicon Definitions vary widely, and the term is applied in a dizzying array of situations, actions, and thoughts. What's more, in conversation amongst ordinary people like you and me, the term racism is a killer word, and once uttered, it shuts down open social interaction. So here are the two, he suggests, here are the two different approaches to racism. Racism. The individualist approach, held by some from different ethnic backgrounds, is an understanding of racism where it's about individual, intentional acts of overt prejudice. The individualist approach to racism is the understanding that racism is about individual, intentional acts of overt prejudice. On the other hand, the collectivist approach to racism focuses on addressing racism as a societal issue rather than an individual one. It emphasizes the role of systemic structures and collective responsibility in dismantling racial inequality. They are both in the culture and both are important, but they don't need to be at war with each other. They don't need to be at war with each other, but the focus needs to be on working together to undo the racialized society, and that is by definition not just about individuals. So how do we work together? We need a third agency to bring the two together, and this is where our understanding of the gospel is paramount. Some, pick any country, understand the gospel to be an in, a, a private interaction of the heart between the individual and God. Um, I'm from the Northeast. We call those people with love the frozen chosen. You know, it's a private thing. I don't really talk about it and blah, blah, blah. There's another approach to the gospel, which is more of a collectivist thing, which is that the gospel isn't just about a personal life, but it, it is something that affects everything that we do and how we do it. In some ways, those that understand the gospel is out there for both, and both are important. And the world we find ourselves in, which is why it's so difficult to not be at war with each other in conversation about these things, is that we have lost our ability in our culture today to hold things in tension. We want to resolve tension. Now, if my mic starts to produce feedback, everyone will get tense. And that is a tension that we need to resolve. We need to sort that out right away so that you'll keep listening, you won't leave. We won't be in pain. If I start to sing and join the band and think that the three-part harmony today is not enough, we need a fourth, and I am it, I will sing out of tune. And I will not have auto-tune in the sound system, and that will be a tension that as long as I sing, you will have to bear because there's nothing they can do at the sound desk to make me sing differently. Some tensions we have to resolve, but the kingdom of God is found when we, compelled by our love, are moved and led by the Spirit to hold the tension. The fruit of the Spirit is what's required today. And partly, the church, and I am so guilty of this, is so quick to promote people according to gifting that we forget to look for evidence of the fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is proof positive that God is at work. And so if you wanna see, I don't recommend this, but if you wanna see if the fruit of the Spirit is at work in your life, sit down and try to have a loving conversation with someone who doesn't see your point of view from eye to eye. You'll know especially if you have to keep the car running, you know? So let's look at our our passage from Ephesians because what Paul does here is he is addressing the fact that there is now a new humanity in Christ where the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And so if you'll turn with me to Ephesians, let's look at what we mean by the gospel. And I don't just mean St. Bart's. I am trying to convey to you what the Anglican communion globally appreciates as the gospel. So in some ways, I'm just trying to bear witness to the community that we're a part of, and I'll speak a bit more about that in a moment. But if you look down with me at verse 14 on page four of your bulletin, it begins, for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Now, peace isn't just, oh, an absence of worry about what the weather's gonna be like tomorrow. But he himself is our shalom. Jesus himself, the person of Jesus, his life, ministry, death, and resurrection is the means by which the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is seeking not just to bring an end to hostility, but is seeking to bring healing, restoration, and make the full presence of his blessing known on earth. And what has he done? He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, which is an interesting concept because there was literally a dividing wall in the temple. And on the dividing wall, there was an inscription to the outer courtyard of the Jerusalem temple that warned people who were not ethically Jewish that they would have only themselves to blame for their death if they crossed that wall and were struck dead. Because it was believed that unless you were Jewish, you could not enter, progress into the further courts. And what Paul is saying here is that what Jesus has done... Jesus' reconciliation of all people has created a new humanity, which means that that warning is no longer needed. The ethnic divide is no longer a matter of salvation. The inner courts and the holy of holies are available to more than just those who are ethnically correct. In verse 14, if we carry on, he mentions, he he goes on, he says... He did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man a new humanity in place of the two, so making peace. This religious code of conduct was all about who's in and who's out. And Jesus, has re- he, is, he has fulfilled it and showed us, as my friends from Louisiana would say, he has shown us a more better way that is free from what was there. And the result is a new humanity, a new human race under the second Adam in whose image the Christian is recreated. And the result is, in verses 16 to 18, there is now peace with God available. So that on the cross, Jesus put to death the hostility between Israel and other nations. And in this verse, in these verses, the focus shifts to the new, to the unified group, to a group where the differences in the, in the congregation in the gathering actually enable a richer, deeper form of love than if it was just a monochrome group where everyone looked the same from the same background. It's not just about peaceful relations. It's about friendships. It's the two parties who were at war with each other aren't just in a demilitarized zone. They're now friends. They're now friends. Because they're one body. Paul describes Jesus' reconciliation very vividly as killing the hostility that stood in the way of peace with God. And he preached Peace And Paul refers to Jesus' Messianic ministry to the whole world, both far and near, which gives us access. We now have access to the Father. What then are the implications? What we see here is uh, he begins to use language of immigration in verse 19. And I say that to you because I have had people tell me that the problem with this country are the immigrants. And I said, oh, how am I a problem? And they said, well, I don't mean you. I, and I take out my green card and I say, well, I'm an immigrant. So I'd like to, I, and I'm not trying to have a go and say that you're a terrible human and I wish you would die. But help me understand. How did you get here? You know, let's, let's talk about it. <clears throat> and this is the and this is the immigration language, which I find it so fascinating that Paul's using. It's ancient Greek immigration language, but it's still there. Verse 19, just look down with me. Just look down so you see I'm not making it up. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Well, the strangers in verse uh, is a term that Paul is employing that was common to political life in the ancient cities like Ephesus. Strangers were complete foreigners with no rights or privileges. But then he goes on, you're no longer aliens. He's not referencing the X-Files, though that would be such an interesting sermon. Um, But the aliens here were non-citizens who dwelt in the city but were accorded customary privileges as neighbors. And it's only the citizens who had full protection and rights in the city. And so what we see here is when we think about the heart of God and discrimination and prejudice, we see here that for those who call on the name of the Lord, they are counted as fellow citizens with the saints, which means that the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has offered them and offers them full protection and full rights in the city. And the result is a cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? Well, our builders and general contractors could tell us exactly what it is. It's the critical stone in the corner of the foundation that ensures that a stone building is square and stable. And so the stability of the church is linked not to our best practices, but to the ministry and work of Jesus Christ in all of this. And so how do we hold the middle? I have no idea, except that we need to be led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, reading His Word, be a community of prayer, and we need to be joined together. Why? Because Christians are the temple of God corporately. Belonging to the visible church is not optional for followers of Christ. And the act of worshiping together is an act of joining with those who are different, I don't know who you interact with during your midweek life, but when we come together on Sunday, we're meant to interact with people who are different, because how else are we shaped in the likeness of Christ except in community, and so what does that mean for us then? Well, as I mentioned, we are part of a global uh, community of churches. In fact, Chad and I yesterday were in Plano, Christchurch Plano, for the installation of the new Bishop of the South, who happens to be a Canadian. You just got to watch these Canadians. They will take over. And it was incredible to hear the Archbishop of Brazil, the Anglican Archbishop of Brazil get up and preach and tell us what it means to follow Jesus. I had no idea in my ignorance that there is a book of common prayer in Portuguese used in Brazil by millions. And then the Archbishop of Rwanda got up, two sermons. I did not plan my snack strategy very well. And they wouldn't let me steal from the reception as was going on. But he spoke. And so here we have our, the Archbishop of Rwanda, the Archbishop of Brazil, commending us for our faith. And you just think, we are part of something much bigger. In fact, as we're in Lent, I want you to pay attention to a couple of things we're about to do. We're about to celebrate communion following a Kenyan liturgy. Our holy orders, so this is even better. Talking about immigration, and we have a lawyer who helped with the immigration process here. When we showed up at the border 10 years ago, coming from London... The letter, the immigration papers stated that I was an African missionary sent from London to Texas to help save the lost. I have it framed somewhere, and the guy, the poor guy, Homeland Security was like, This is the best thing that's happened all week. Welcome to Texas. I say that to say the authority, the spiritual authority that Chris and I wield come from the Diocese of Kabondo in North Tanzania. Because as the Episcopal Church, in some areas, was losing its moorings in the faith, we needed help. And it was the places where the Anglican Church is growing the fastest that came to our aid. Asia, Africa, India, we used to think that the average Anglican was a Nigerian who was 18 years old, but now we don't know. It's probably a Dalit in India, because the, the Anglican church, amongst the lowest class of Indians, is growing at a rate that is unprecedented any, anywhere in the world. Because of that, we see that we have a role at moving the church to the middle, because people have done it who have gone before us, and our authority comes from it. It is understood, and I know I've gone on too long, but just bear with me a few moments longer. The Ankin Church has concluded in its report, entitled Lament to Action, that there are six pervading evils that prevent churches from being in the middle, and they are the following. Prejudice. Silence, ignorance, fear, hypocrisy, and power that hinders our growth as individuals and as a church body. And they can prevent our churches and communities from being all that they're called to be. And so, we are to acknowledge prejudice. We are to speak into silence. That's what we're trying to do now before there is a massive event in our culture. And we're doing these things of bringing the church together to talk where we don't see eye to eye so that when a crisis hits this year, and there will be some, I'm afraid, because we live in a fallen world with broken people, we will have a way that we have learned and practiced where we can come together and we can lament, we can talk, and we can do it in love as as followers of Jesus. We need to speak into the silence. I've had to address my ignorance because I'm not from here and that was not an excuse. So I've met and sat with people who have experienced racism and I said, do you mind, just explain to me what your experience has been like. We need to name fear. We need to admit vulnerability and pay attention to power and commit to action. The thing that is most needed in our time, in our country, is formation. Because in order to have these conversations, it requires a certain level of emotional maturity to be able to have a non-anxious question about a very complex issue that is charged And so what we're trying to do, and we're not, you know, it's an experiment, is we are trying to be led by the Spirit to find a way, as we're led by Jesus, where we can, with the help of of the Spirit of God, the Scriptures, the liturgy, where we can form and shape our values and attitudes and how we live our faith in every moment, the world isn't looking to the latest celebrity Christian to explain to them how to live their lives. They're looking to us. Ordinary people. Let me finish with this from Desmond Tutu. As much as the world has an instinct for evil and is a breeding ground for genocide, holocaust, slavery, racism, war, oppression, and injustice, the world has an even greater instinct for goodness, rebirth, mercy, beauty, truth, freedom, and love. And so Lent is about moving in our worship from lament to action, from repentance to healing. And the invitation that Jesus is making to you and to me is that we would become agents of God's goodness, His rebirth, His mercy, His beauty, His truth, His freedom, and love in East Dallas. Can't do it alone. We have to do it together. And so I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't do it justice. You can't. My goal wasn't to settle it, my goal was to start a conversation. And I still don't understand it all, and I probably never will. But I know that I have sinned that I've gotta deal with in my heart, in a number of areas, and I know that that power cannot be trusted. That's what Jesus said. And that's why we need each other. So why don't we pray? Let's spend a bit of time praying, and then we'll move on to the joyful bits. These are prayers of the people that were commissioned for just this uh, topic, this time to be a church that moves from lament to action. And so when I say, Lord, in your mercy, I invite you to say, hear our prayer. God of all peoples, we pray for all victims of racial hatred and discrimination. We ask that you would dispel the arrogance and animosity that shatter the unity of your church and fill your faithful people with your truth and love. Lord, in your mercy, God of freedom, we pray for our nation and all the nations of the world. Free us from division, disunity, and distrust in our common life. Awaken compassion and urgency in those in authority, and give them a vision of your justice and peace. Lord, in your mercy, God of compassion, we pray for all who have lost hope. Pour your love on the lost, the least, and the suffering and bring reconciliation and wholeness where there is division, sickness, and sorrow. Lord, in your mercy. God of eternity, we remember before you all who have died by acts of violence, war, and hatred, and honor the faithful in every generation who have worked tirelessly for justice and the equality of all peoples. Lord, in your mercy. God of love, we pray for ourselves. Awaken in us compassion and humility as we seek and serve Christ in all people. We ask even now that you'd fill us with the power of your Spirit, enabling us to be instruments of reconciliation and love in our world and use us for the works of your kingdom. Lord, in your mercy, Accept these prayers, Heavenly Father, for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.